All right, let's go ahead and let's uh, open up our Bibles to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, and we're going to uh, finish up at least chapter 1. And I'm going to pick it up in verse 10 where we, you know, I kind of covered a little bit of it, but there's a few things that I wanted to uh, reiterate and emphasize, maybe. For those of you who are just joining us, I just want to remind you, Paul, this is his last epistle that he wrote to Timothy. Last epistle that he wrote, period. He wrote this from a dungeon somewhere in Rome. Luke is the only one who's with him. As he's going to tell us tonight, everybody in Asia has forsaken him. Everybody has turned their back on Paul. So for all these years and He's ministered, he has led many, 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 countless, probably countless people to Christ. Established more churches. And yet all those churches that he established has now turned their back on him. Plus he has the threat of his own death looming over his head. He knows it's going to happen. And so he's writing this letter to Timothy because things have began to crop up in the church of Ephesus. We talked a little bit about that. And the issue of false doctrine was spreading, and it was becoming more so. And so Paul is writing to Timothy in order to encourage him to be strong in the Lord. Actually, when we get to chapter 2, he's going to start off, stand strong in the grace of God. Because there's always those who want to come in and begin to dilute it and to turn it into something that it really isn't. So let's pick it up. In verse 10, he says, but is now made manifest. Of course, here, you know, in verse 9, he was talking that how Jesus has saved us and has done it according to his own purpose and grace and that was given to us in Christ even before the world began. And so he says, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light that is to our understanding through the gospel Paul is sitting there with the proclamation of death he knows it's but a short time and he's going to be beheaded not a not a nice thing to think about but that's where he's at and yet, when he's writing this, he tells Timothy that Christ has brought us life. And he has showed us what real immortality is. Because he, by his appearing, has made this manifest. You know, the word manifest in the Greek simply means to made seen. You know, the Bible tells us in John chapter 1, you know, he says, No man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son of God, he's made him seen. He's manifested him. So we know these things by the manifestation of Christ. He came. Jesus fulfilled everything that had been prophesied in the Psalms and in the law and everything according uh, to what he come to do for mankind and his redemptive work. But he abolished death. Paul was sitting here with this proclamation and yet he said he had abolished death. There's really no concept of death to a Christian. And I think you see this in Paul's writing to Timothy. He really 
hasn't even considered it. I know I, I wished I could say I would have been as spiritual as he was, and, 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 but I don't think I would have. I mean, here recently, I thought I was dying. I, and, I, and I say that with no tongue in cheek. I really did. And there was a lot of things that I was concerned about. My wife being one, and then you, and the church, and people that I minister to online, and just all kinds of stuff was going through my head. But Paul is concerned about letting Timothy know that in Christ we have life. He wants him to know that. So he really doesn't even have a concept of it. According to Jesus, if we're in Christ, then as Christians, we never really die anyway. We only make a transition. We go from one temple to the other, one tabernacle, he says. And I want to show you something just to, to kind of drive that point home. It's in 2 Corinthians, if you'll turn with me there, to chapter 5. And we're going to read verses 1 through 8. It's just a very powerful passage of Scripture in dealing with the issue of eternal life and what that actually looks like. Because there are some strange ideas that people have when it comes to eternity. Or heaven, even. How many books? I saw another thing on Facebook today. It's like, this guy died and he went to heaven and talked to Jesus. <laughs> really? You know... Man, how many does that make now? Isn't it funny? There's only one guy in the Bible who says that he was actually caught up into the third heaven and saw things that was unspeakable. Unspeakable means what? Unspeakable. Right? And he said nothing about it. I just think that's interesting. And yet now we got him selling books, telling you exactly what's about, and none of them are alike. That's what always gets me. It's like, wow, heaven must be really messed up. Because none of these guys have been there and talked to Jesus. None of them got straight. They're all different, which tells you that it's not true. Remember the adage in theology. Never forget this. If you've got to write it down to get it in your heart, get it in your heart. If it's something new, it ain't true. And if it's true, it's nothing new. Ecclesiastes. You know, when it comes to doctrine, if when you hear new things, most of the time it's not true. Because what theology is, is the simple teaching of the Word of God, and it's been the same from the beginning. It's been the same from the beginning. But here we are talking about the issue of eternal life. Look at 2 Corinthians 5. Look at verse 1. And of course, Paul the Apostle, writing to this church, he says, for we know, if you're taking notes on the line, we know, for we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, he's talking about his body, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan being burdened. Not that we should be unclothed, but clothed upon that, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Now he that hath wrought for us this selfsame thing is God, who also hath given unto us, and if you're taking notes, underline this, the earnest of the Spirit. Therefore, we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Man, I love that passage. Now, I want to point something out to you. He says that he's 
given us the earnest of the Spirit, therefore, you see that? He says, therefore, therefore we're confident. Why? Why would that matter? In the Greek, that term, earnest of the Spirit, is very interesting. Because what it actually means, it is a term used in real estate. And it means a pledge. It is part of the purchase money for property given in advance as security for the rest. Now, even in regular real estate, we don't really do it too much anymore. But when a person really wants to buy a house, okay, because let's face it, you can put a bid on a house. And if you've ever sold one, you know what I'm talking about. You'll get people who come and they'll go, yeah, I want that. And they'll put a bid on it and you'll go, okay. And the next thing you know, they can't get the loan. But you get a guy who comes along and says, I want that house and I don't want you to take any more bids on it. Here's half of the money down. And the cash is on the barrel head. You understand what I'm saying? What's he telling you? He's telling you, not only do I want to buy this, I have the ability to pay for the rest. See, the Bible says that God has given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. It was the down payment, if you will, and the guarantee that he will complete that salvation. Because, it, let's face it again, we're still not redeemed from this body. Oh, our eternity, our salvation, that way has been sealed. But we still have this tabernacle, which Paul here says we groan. And I don't know about you, but the older I get, the more I groan. Especially in the mornings or when I get sick. I'm groaning a lot anymore. But we want to be clothed upon that mortality would be swallowed up with life. Which is what Paul is writing to Timothy and telling him. But we have that revelation of that. And the cool part is that Paul says that we can have confidence. Because we have been given the earnest of the Spirit. God has given us the earnest of the Spirit. Therefore, we can be confident that the rest of it will be fulfilled. Jesus will always keep his word. Even Jesus, of course, in talking, remember Mary and Martha? Martha's like, oh, Lord, if you'd have been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus said, well, he'll live again. Oh, I know. We've got a friend Jewish lady. She cracks me up. I hope she ain't listening. Because every time I try talking to her about the Lord, you know. Oh, I know. I know. I know. Every time I hear that, I think of Martha. Jesus says, He'll live again. Oh, I know. In the last days, I know, Lord, you know, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. And then he says this, believest thou this? Do you believe it? Is it in your heart? That's why Christians really don't die. This transition. We go from one tabernacle to the other. I'll throw this in for free. Paul, in that passage of Corinthians, when he talks about this earthly tabernacle. We, we have a house made with hands, or made not with hands, but eternal in the heaven. We want to be clothed upon with that house. You know, there's been a, hymns written, you know, I've got a mansion just over the hilltop. Do you, do you know how many people really believe that he's talking about a building? Jesus said this. Jesus said, you believe in God, believe also in me. 
In my father's house, there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And lo, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will return again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you might be also. Those mansions that he's talking about is that tabernacle, that glorified body that is going to be united with you in the rapture. Of course, if you're alive, you're simply going to be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. But those who have died in Christ shall rise first, reunited and glorified, transformed. Now, I'm not saying there isn't buildings in heaven. I can show them to you in the book of Revelation. But I think that the mansions that we're talking about is that new glorified body, something I don't have to groan about, you know, that never gets sick, never gets ill. I'm looking forward to that. I don't know about you. Look at verse 11. Whereunto, Paul says, I am appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. We talked a little bit last time about the threefold calling of Paul. Preaching, of course, is to the unbeliever, to the unregenerated. Preach the gospel, that is, Jesus Christ has come and redeemed, justified, glorified, or sanctified, set aside anybody who has put their faith in him. And he's done that all on your behalf. It's by his works, not by our works. This is what people need to hear. This is the gospel. That their sin does not have to be acquainted to them. Their sin can be taken away. Not just covered as it was in the Old Testament. The, the kofar in the Hebrew. Covered. But taken away. Completely. Nailed to the cross. That's for unbelievers. Teaching, of course, Paul says, is for the church. And the church is in desperate need of teaching today. How do you know? Look around. Look at the craziness that goes on in the body of Christ. You know, I do think, and I, I want you guys to really get this, because I know sometimes when, when people hear me preach, and especially on radio, you know, I have been accused of picking on the body of Christ. Not so. I believe the body of Christ is extremely healthy. I really do, if you understand what the body of Christ is. The body of Christ is people individually who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, who are in his word, who are learning about him, who are drawing close to him. When you say the body of Christ, we're not necessarily talking about an institution. We're talking about Jesus' bride, which is made up of individuals, regardless of what church they sit in, regardless of where they're at. If they're a believer in Christ and they are clinging to all that Jesus Christ has done, then you are part of the elect. And so I believe those guys are absolutely healthy. I think they're perfectly well. But when we look at the organized institution of the church, denominationally, non-denominationally, then we begin to see what Paul the Apostle is addressing even in this epistle to Timothy, which started from the beginning. Heresies, craziness, nuttiness, all done in the name of the Lord. And now what we're seeing within the body of Christ, the organized church, is that acceptance of just anything. But the church itself is actually good. But teaching is absolutely necessary. And why? Because it helps to prevent those things. If you ask the normal, average Christian who sits in the pew what their biblical worldview is, I'll guarantee you most of them could not answer that because most of them probably don't even know what that means. If the study of the Word of God does not change your worldview, there's a problem. 
You know, the Word of God is for correction, it's for reproof, it's for instruction in righteousness that the man of God or the woman of God might be fully complete, prepared unto every good work. This is what it's for. This is why we gather around it. This is why we study it. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. We want to know more about him because it's through that that we grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. But our worldview, how we see the world, how we see everything within Christendom, outside of Christendom, should be filtered through the Word of God. That gives us our worldview, our biblical worldview. And when you see that not done, then you see stuff like abortion being ordained, you know, okayed within the body of Christ. You see homosexuality being ordained as, well, you know, things have changed. You know, pastors of enormous churches going, well, you know, we might need to reconsider. No, you know, you might need to reconsider. Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, brother. The Word of God is the Word of God. You know, it doesn't really matter what the sin is. I realize that people like to pick on particular things. It's not particular things. The fact is, is all those who do not believe in Jesus Christ are going to wind up on the wrong side of the judgment bar. You know, it, 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 what we need to do is just preach the gospel. But we need to teach the believer. And so teaching is absolutely, and it's really one of the things that the church in general is lacking greatly in. And so the people are ignorant. Now, there's a difference between ignorance and stupidity. Okay? Ignorance simply means you don't know. Stupidity means you know, but you did it anyway. Okay? We're all guilty of that probably at one time or another. But when it comes to the things of God, you know, ignorance can be fixed. And how do we fix that? We fix that with, with, with knowledge and with learning and just simply teaching. So we want to make sure that that's what we do. You know, teaching is for the church. Preaching is for the unbeliever. But teaching will absolutely bring church growth. You know, there's many programs today being done in the name of church growth. Every scheme, every trick of man is being, you know, used other than the Holy Spirit to do what only the Holy Spirit can do. And that is to bring people in. I heard a great man of God one time. His name was Chuck Smith. You've probably heard me mention him. He was my pastor for many years. Pastored one of the I don't know whether it was the first mega church, but it certainly was a huge, huge church. Started off with 25 people at a little white cottage, a little chapel. That's why they called it Calvary Chapel. And it grew into this, what it is today. Maranatha music, all that stuff came out. But Chuck always said the same thing. Whatever you bring them in that door with, you will have to keep them with. If you bring them in with light shows and rock bands or what other scheme you can come up with you will have to keep getting better and bigger at it in order to keep them there you understand because somebody down the block is going to see that you brought them in that way and they're going to start doing it too but if you bring them in with the word of god with the simple teaching of the word of god and just like the songs we sang tonight nothing else satisfies when people get a real taste for the Word of God and you show them what expositorial teaching looks like, I really believe that most people will not settle for anything less. And they'll know the difference every time they hear it. Because that's what brings church growth. But my point being is that when people are really fed and when they are engulfed and, and really in, entrenched into the Word of God, it is their 
natural, although how be it supernatural, desire to win other people to Christ. And therefore we start winning people and the church grows organically. It does it supernaturally, but it does it naturally. And we don't need the schemes, you see. We just simply are sharing our faith. You know, Zechariah 4, 6, he says, it's not by power, or not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. We need to do these things in the power of the Holy Spirit. And you'll see a difference. Verse 12, he says, for which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed. If you take a note, make note of he said, in whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that he's able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Paul told Timothy why he was imprisoned. He was imprisoned for what he had been preaching and what he had been teaching. But he says, I'm not ashamed. Paul said, nevertheless, I'm not ashamed. Why? For I know whom I have believed. I want you to take note of that. Paul didn't say, for I know what I believe. You notice that? Even though there are plenty in Christendom today who love to tell me what they believe or recite to me what doctrine they uphold to. Paul the Apostle, when he wrote this last letter to young Pastor Timothy, in this dark, dank confines of a Roman prison cell, with his own death imminent, did not tell Timothy at that moment in what he believed. He says, I know whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him against that day. Now you know why Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. It's only when you fully know who Jesus Christ not only was, but who he is and what he's done on your behalf, that you are going to be persuaded that he is able to keep what you've committed to him. And that's why we study the Word of God, to know him better. And the more you know him, you know, the, you know the old song, and to know him is to love him. But to know him, really, is to be persuaded that he's able. Because he is God Almighty. And he keeps his word. Now, I want you to make no mistake about what I'm saying. Correct orthodoxy. Good doctrine is extremely important. But a creed will not save you. A particular doctrinal stint will not save you. It is a person that saves you. And that person is Jesus of Nazareth. He's the only thing that can save you. Creeds are good, if they're good. Doctrine is good. Orthodoxy is extremely important. But none of those things can save. Only Jesus can save. Paul said here at the end of his life, if you will, I know whom I have believed. Paul had walked the backside of the desert for three years with Jesus Christ personally. He had seen him. He had been taught by him. He had ventured out into the mission field and had won many, many people to the Lord and had established more churches than probably he could even remember. 
had done great things for God. He knew whom he had believed. Because at the end of the day, you see, that's all he had left was Jesus. Because at this particular time, and we're going to see it here in a moment, nobody else was with him. Can you imagine that the labor that Paul had bestowed in the name of the Lord must have felt like it had been for nothing at that moment? Because everyone had turned their back on him. But yet, the Lord was faithful. And Paul was focused on him. So he tells Timothy in verse 13, Hold fast! that form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. Hold fast that, that form of sound words. In his last recorded visit, and we read it together there in the book of Acts, you remember Paul had gone to Miletus. He had sent a message to the elders there in Ephesus to meet him there. He said, I want you guys to come down to Miletus because as you recall, Paul was in a, a hurry. He wanted to get back to Jerusalem in order to, to be there for the feast. And he wanted to meet with these guys before he went down. So he called for them. So the elders met there at the beach of Miletus and Paul's ship was actually just waiting offshore for him. I mean, he was ready to go. So they're meeting there on the beach. They're having a prayer time. And Paul begins to tell them, that when I was with you, I, I didn't shun to deliver on you the full counsel of God. I, I shared everything with you. I taught you. I showed you the things of God. Now he says that the, the Holy Spirit's telling me that everywhere I go, that bonds are waiting for me. Beyond that, he said, I'm not sure what else is, is, is but I know that this much is true. So there's going to be a problem. But I'm persuaded. But then he goes on to tell them. He says, I want you to bear and record that both night and day, he says, I have bore a faithful witness of Jesus Christ as living among you. And I know that after I depart, he said, grievous wolves are going to come in, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves, he said, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples to themselves. And there's no doubt when Paul made this warning to them that he did it weeping. He said, I know this is going to happen. And yet he was powerless to stop it. He knew that these men were going to rise. And so he encourages these men, the, the, the elders that he met there, to be faithful in the word. Because this stuff was going to uh, arise so he told him don't do that so thus it did come to pass there at the church of Ephesus after Paul left these men did come in they arose even from among the, uh, the, the, the congregation and they began to spew all kinds of false doctrine and so as these doctrines began to raise their, their ugly heads there at the church of Ephesus because of Paul's incarceration it actually wound up emboldening these guys they got stronger why well because Paul now was stuck in prison. He could not exercise his apostolic authority over them in correcting them, so they weren't afraid of him anymore. And as Paul's going to say, everybody had forsaken him anyway. So he had no influence in the church, and so craziness was arising. But that puts Timothy at the spear point of what was going on. Why? Because Timothy was the only one there battling. 
And so Paul's writing this letter to him to warn him to stand strong, hold fast those sound words that were delivered unto you. Good verse 14. That good thing which was committed unto thee, Paul's talking about the truth of the word of God, keep by the Holy Ghost which dwells in us. This thou knowest that all they which are in Asia be turned away from me, of whom are Philegius and Hermogenes. Paul at this particular moment, and I think it's kind of interesting here if, if you want to put it this way, was basically disfellowship. He says, all they which are in Asia had turned away from me. They had diminished his influence. Even the Corinthian church had questioned his apostleship. You know, Paul had a lot of people who didn't like him. Why? Because he spoke the truth. Now keep it in mind, they turned their back on him, but God used him to write two-thirds of the New Testament. He's actually writing the New Testament while they had turned their back on him. But they were no longer fellowshipping with Paul. They were no longer listening to him. As I mentioned previously, his incarceration only served to embolden these false teachers, of which Paul names two of them here. I want to point out to you, Paul was not afraid to name names. These two men, Homogenes and Phygelus, these were two men who had come up and began to teach these false doctrines, mixing grace and works. Now, Paul was not being listened to by the rest of the church. Paul's in prison, and I, I believe probably many people were glad he was because they no longer had to put up with him. But these two guys were probably popular. That's why Paul knew them. Popular teachers, you see. And Paul had the gall to mention them by name. I was listening to a pastor. Used to be friends with him. I haven't talked with him in many years, but he posted a thing on Facebook the other day, and I listened to it. And he was questioning. He said, what's wrong? with the Calvary Chapel movement anymore. When our apologetics have went out the window, when now it seems to be it's a problem to even point out error when it's being taught, and people think it's a bad thing if you mention somebody's name. Even a guy that I like, Francis Chan, I listened to a thing the other day. And doctrinally, Francis is solid as a rock. But here's what he said. He said, he didn't understand. He said, you know, he was talking about Rick Warren. Rick's got some issues. Rick started off on a ramp foot, but Rick's got issues. Rick has gotten himself involved in a lot of craziness. It's just not godly. Not, I'm not questioning his salvation, but I'm saying he's gotten off into some bad teaching. But what Francis was saying was that because people had chose to open up their mouth and say something about it, he didn't understand why some people weren't dead. <laughs> why? Because in his mind, God would take you out if you said something bad about one of his anointed. Now, you can write this verse down. You don't have to look it up. I'm going to give it to you. 
Psalms 105, verse 15. It's also in Chronicles. And every Gentile out there will twist and distort this verse, but let me straighten it out for you. Here's what it says. Saying, touch not mine anointed and do my prophets no harm. And you will find these guys who will take that and they want to apply that to themselves because I'm anointed of God, you see. And everything I say coming out of my mouth must be true. Therefore, if anybody says anything bad about me, and a lot of Gentiles fall for it, I challenge you to go back and read it. You'll find that in the context, what the Lord is talking about there is the children of Israel. And he says, touch not mine anointed. He's talking about the children of Israel, not any one man. And he says, do my prophets no harm. Why? Because he had sent the prophets to whom? To the children of Israel to tell them about the coming of the Messiah. And he didn't want them disrupting that. It's in two places in the Bible. It's in the Old Testament only. You will find nothing about it in the New Testament. Keep it in mind, hermeneutics. If it is taught in the Old Testament, it is repeated in the New Testament, it is for the church. If it is taught in the Old Testament, never mentioned in the New Testament, it is a prophecy. It is declaring something that is to come. It is not for the church as far as practice goes. But there's been many people who have taken this verse and turned it into some sort of a protection agency for anointed teachers. Listen, anybody who stands behind a pulpit probably has some sort of an anointing on it, if he's any good doctrine. But just because a man is standing, I'll tell you what Pastor Chuck Smith said one time, and I agree entirely with him. He says, even when I'm standing behind a pulpit, it is so easy for me to go from the spirit to my flesh in a split second. Why? Because sometimes we get a little excited as preachers. And sometimes we can wind up saying something in a moment of excitement. If I'm not really in the spirit at that moment, you can say something that's not accurate. You've got to be careful with that. But there are so much false teachings. Paul was not afraid to mention a name. I've never been afraid to mention names. I've taken heat for it. But you know what? I've always got scripture to back it up. Listen to me. Orthodoxy. That's why I said is it, it is absolutely important. But the reason so much craziness goes on in the body of Christ is because we're afraid, because of political correctness, to say when something is not accurate. And we need to call that which is not accurate, not accurate. And Paul does this. He mentions these two men and says, look, these guys are two which have risen up and they are teaching things that are not right. Now, look at verse 16. He says, the Lord give mercy unto the house of Onesiphorus. For he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he was in Rome, he sought me out very diligently and found me. And the Lord grant unto him that he might find mercy of the Lord in that day. And in how many things he ministered unto me at Ephesus, thou knowest very well. Now I want you to take note of this guy. Like I said, Paul was on his last breath so to speak he's in this prison everybody has forsaken him now when you went to Rome and you wound up in the prison system there it wasn't like going to Columbus Ohio if you wind up in the big house pretty much we would know where to find you if we were in Columbus, we would know. We would go to the big house and we would, we would be able to go in there and say, yeah, we're looking for Roger McDonald. And they'd say, well, he's in cell number, you know. And we'd have his cell number and we'd go up and, you know, and take him, you know, the file and the cake. 
trying to get him out. But we would know it. We would be able to find it. When you went to Rome, it wasn't quite this way. Why? Because even though the Romans were very organized, they weren't that organized. They had lots of people that went to prison and lots of people that were being held in dungeons. And they didn't have one necessarily central prison. They had lots of them. Dungeons everywhere. And sometimes they would just stick you in something that was convenient. And so you were anywhere. So my point being is Paul says that Oniferous came to Rome specifically to find him, even though everybody else had turned their back on him. And Oniferous went from place to place, from dungeon to dungeon, until he found him. What a friend, man. You know, when you're in the ministry, those kind of friends, as it is here, are very far and few between. Guys who just know that, you know what, I don't, you know, the Lord has blessed this man, this man's teaching has blessed me, and they just go that extra mile. I've been through some things in my life and in my ministry. I've had people forsake me completely. And I had one man who sought me out. One. One kid that I had led to the Lord many years before came and walked the streets of a town he wasn't even familiar with. But he found me. I know what that feels like. And thank God for those type of men. Thank God. Because it's at those moments when you need those kind of men. That's where Paul was at. Was he centered on the Lord? Absolutely. Was he focused on Christ? Absolutely. Was he focused on the life that he had in Jesus? Absolutely. And he was even writing and encouraging Timothy in the very things that we're talking about and, and also talking about the issue of, of, of false teachers and stuff. But at the very end of his dissertation in this chapter, he says, the Lord have mercy on the house of Oniphorus. For he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. I like this guy. I love this guy. I can't wait to meet him. Because he wasn't ashamed of Paul. Even though everybody else had forsaken him, and I'm sure they all had their reasons. You know, they didn't just leave Paul, and I want you to get this. They accused him of all kinds of things. They had denied his apostleship. They had totally turned their back on him, except for Luke, except for Timothy, and Onesiphorus. Even the guys who had traveled with him, you know, Paul... We remember Demas. If you remember Demas, Demas is mentioned three times. The first time Paul mentions Demas, he says, My brother Demas is here with us. Faithful minister. The second time he mentions Demas, he said, Well, Demas is here. The third time he says, Demas has departed from me, having loved this present life. Paul had seen his share of people who wandered away. But now he's at the end of his life. And they've all done it. Wow. But what was his focus? His focus was Jesus. Because at the end of the day, gang, that's what it's going to be down to. I don't care if you think you've got a million friends. I'm going to tell you right now, you've probably got a million associates. But I doubt that you have many friends. The 
Bible says there is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. That'd be Jesus. But the onifruses of the world are far and few between. That when everybody else has forsaken you, they will search and go to prisons and look to the nooks and crannies until they find you. And not just find you, but then they begin to minister to you and to refresh you. See, Paul says it. He refreshed me. Because, boy, I'm telling you, when you get down like that, it's easy to be discouraged. You need somebody to come along and say, hey, brother, you need that refreshment. But at the end of the day, gang, and I'll close with this, it's really only going to be you and Jesus. You know, me and my wife, we got a great relationship. I mean, I, I love my wife more than anything. Only the Lord is above her. But man, we have talked about this. You know, even at the, you know, what if? At the end of the day, it's still going to be me and Jesus. It's just me and him. And the same way with her. Regardless of what the city, it's going to be you and him. And so that's the question, really, I'm going to leave with you, especially those who might hear this broadcast. Where are you? I don't know what your situation is. I don't know how dark your circumstance or how bright. But I'm telling you, every one of us is going to have that day. We're going to have that prison experience. Some of it will be on a deathbed with the threat of cancer or whatever that thing might be that's looming. We're all going to have something. We need to have our relationship with God to the point that Paul did where we're totally focused on all that Jesus Christ. Because really, that's all that's going to matter at that moment. I've been at too many deathbeds. I've prayed for too many people who are dying. I've seen the saved and the unsaved go to the other side. It's much better to go with the saved those who know Jesus. Why? Because, man, you know, regardless of anything else, it's just knowing at that moment to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We don't really die. We're just making a transition. We're going from this tabernacle to another. Blessed in the eyes of the Lord are the death of his saints, the Word says. So I just want to challenge you tonight. Where do you stand with Jesus? If it's that time, if it's that close to the end, is it just you and him? Does it feel that way? Do you know it? Do you know whom you believe? If you don't, you need to. And you need to do it now. So you can say with the Apostle Paul, I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. I've committed my life to him, and I know he's able. I pray that you've done the same. Father, we love you. We just thank you for your word. We thank you for the testimony of Paul about this friend, the Lord Father Onesiris, who sought him out. When everybody else had turned their back on him, Lord Father, and refreshed him and ministered to him and was not ashamed of him, 
Lord, we thank you for men and women like that. Father, we pray for those who have heard your word. Maybe their life at this particular moment, Lord Father, is not in a good way. Maybe they are at death's door. Maybe their life seems like it's at death's door, Lord Father. Maybe everything, maybe everybody has forsaken them. But Lord Father, we know that you haven't. I pray, Lord Father, that you would just reach through the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, Lord Father, and that you would touch them and let them know, Father, that you want to be there for them. And bring them to yourself, Lord Father. Draw them by the power of the Holy Spirit. We love you. We thank you for all that you've done, all that you want to do, and all that you're going to do, Lord. In the most powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Question.